Well, we are four weeks into a sermon series now that I think we could probably all agree that it's painful to see some of the stuff that's been buried beneath the surface of our lives. Huh? But I hope you're also starting to get excited as you recognize some of the stuff God is showing you or trying to show you about your heart might be what's been missing and what you've been looking for your entire life that could explain why you've struggled so much and for so long in certain areas. Why there's so much conflict or confusion or disappointment High highs, low lows, why your life is not as level and consistent in joy and peace and purpose with the Lord as you see the scripture saying it should be. What's up? What's up? And I've been pressing you. I know it's not a fun series, but it's a life changing series. I want this to go from information to life transformation. And I got to be honest, for that to happen, this can't be the magic hour. You want to go from information to life transformation you got to keep doing some things in between these Sundays. So I'm pressing you, please keep digging, studying, wrestling, praying, thinking, saying, God, help me to apply this to me. And so let me encourage you, consider getting the book Gospel Treason. This week, read chapter four that will unpack further what we're going to touch on today. Download the free study guide from my website, bradbigney.com, and sit and think and pray and, and answer the questions. Look up some other verses. Consider discussing it with someone else or inviting someone else to help you see you, to speak into your life, to wrestle together. Because if you are still thinking, ready? So what, Brad? These are idols in my heart. It's not affecting anyone but me. Oh, I want to challenge that line of thinking because today I want to talk about how your idols and my idols, you ready? Wreak havoc on the people around you, especially those closest to you that you should be loving the most. You realize the people closest to you that you should be loving the most suffer the most are impacted the most when you live blind to the idols of your heart. When you go unaware of the idols of your heart, they're the ones that suffer the most. Paul Tripp says this, do you have any conflict in your life? Do you experience moments of extreme irritation towards someone you otherwise love? Are there people who simply push your buttons more than others? Do certain things drive you crazy on a daily basis? Why does it seem that people, things, and situations are in our way? Why do we seldom go through a day without some experience of conflict? The answer to all of these questions is that we think of our own lives. We think of our lives as our own, and we are more committed to the purposes of our own kingdom than we are to God's. We need to recognize that the people in our way have been sent to us by a wise and loving sovereign king. Oh, listen to this. He never gets a wrong address, and he always chooses just 
the right moment to expose our hearts so that he can realign them to his. You realize we never think it's a good time. I didn't think it was a good time in our trailer, right? We don't have money. I'm in seminary. I'm taking extra credits to try to do this in three years instead of four years because we don't have money. I'm working three part-time jobs. And my attitude was just, honey, just put your head down. Let's get through this. Let me get the MDiv. Let me get the MDiv. And then we'll talk about our marriage. I probably wouldn't have had a marriage. I didn't think this was a good time. I'm now sitting doing marriage counseling homework. I've already got Hebrew. I've got Greek. I've got the New Testament. And so I'm licking my wounds, sitting there thinking, I shouldn't even be doing this. I'm a great guy. I'm a great guy. And now I'm having to do Wayne Max strengthening your marriage. I'm having to go to marriage counseling. I did not think it was a good time at all. We almost never do. We're like, God, not this, not that, not now, not here. Let's be honest. What do we really mean? How about not never, God? Not ever. I don't want to see my heart. I don't. But we act like this is just not a good time. He never gets. So you think right now, whatever that situation is, that circumstance, that person, that new coworker, that neighbor, that extended family situation, he never gets a wrong address. And he always chooses just the right moment to expose our hearts so that he can realign them to his. Remember Ezekiel 14, one day, a few weeks ago? What is God after? That I may seize them by their hearts. He's after our hearts. He wants our hearts because listen, when he has our heart, oh, you live free. You live with more joy. You love him better. You love others better. You live loose to the things of this world. There's less conflict and confusion. He's after our hearts. And he's sovereign. Do you believe God is sovereign? Do you believe that he actually orchestrates in his over people and places and circumstances? Then that new supervisor, that new next door neighbor, that family situation, that you fill in the blank, that health crisis, that financial struggle is no accident. He always chooses the right address. It arrived with you. And just the right moment to expose our hearts so that he can align them to his. Whatever it is right now, you, you get it in your mind, whatever it is right now, God is wanting to use that person and those circumstances to expose your heart. I'm gonna, I'm gonna date, date myself just like a photograph. Young people, we haven't always had amazing iPhones and Androids. In the past, if you were into photography, everybody knows this, anybody that was really into photography, then we knew, oh, they developed their own pictures, they have a dark room. And you actually had to open the side of the camera and take out a roll of film, hello? And you'd go into that dark room and you'd dunk that film down into some harsh chemicals, a pan of harsh chemicals, and you would clip it on a line in a dark room and give it some time. Darkness, harshness, time. And a picture would begin to develop and it's called to be exposed. Listen to me, the darkness, the harshness, the time didn't create. That picture was always on the film. 
the darkness, harshness, time began to expose what had always been there. So get this. We're so guilty of thinking, well, that's not really me. What's coming out now with all the stress, with all the pressure, with all these inconveniences, with that person, this. No, no, that's you. That was always on the film of your heart. That was always in there. It just took some time, some darkness, some harshness to begin to expose what was there. But we can be so guilty of saying, that's not really me. Don't judge me on that. Don't base it on, nope. There it is. There it is. That's what's going on with us. The conflict with people around us exposes our hearts in way that comfortable times and margin and everything going our way and us getting our agenda done does not reveal. Dave Harvey confesses, after I was saved and before I was married, I lived under the mad, undaunted delusion that I was spiritually mature. Mine was a rich and largely imaginary kind of holiness. If ignorance is bliss, I was in permanent ecstasy. The infrequent examinations of my seemingly innocent heart revealed little need for improvement. Then it happened. I got married. And I I became a blame shifter. John Bettler has said, your spouse always hooks your idol. But marriage didn't simply hook my idols. It hoisted them six feet in the air and towed them around the house. I can't tell you how many times I thought, I never had these problems before. This must be my wife's fault. The truth is, I'd always been a blame shifter. It's just that after getting married, there were so many more good opportunities to express this fault. I don't know what it is with you. I know what the things are with me. I just thought, I was loving. I was loving before I got married. I was, I was worshipful. I was, no. This pressure of trailer, two kids, poverty, wife, it pushed to the surface what was always true about Brad Bigney. And I had lived in some ignorance of what my heart is really like. And God is not a bad God. He's not a mean God. He wasn't seeking to punish me. But he was seeking to grow me and take me to the next level. And it's not just marriage that can do that. A roommate can do that. A coworker, new team situation, new supervisor, any number of ways God get this done. But God will get it done. You know, that verse, Philippians, it said, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. We like to quote that, but you need to realize, and it will be painful how he gets it done. We tend to think, he'll just make me more like Jesus every year. Gosh, this is fun, becoming like Jesus. Usually not. Usually not. It's like you're on the anvil being hammered on. And then he's heating it up. First he heats it up, and then he hammers on it to shape it in a new shape. Sound fun? No. Or a Black & Decker sander just taking off some edges. To the glory of God. You're like, oh, you know, I've never heard anybody said, said no one ever. Oh my goodness, last year, Pastor Brad, I grew spiritually like never before. I got a bonus. I got a pay increase. Hair grew back on my head. My wife lost 30 pounds. My kids all scored great and got in all the schools I want. My, my neighbor I hate moved out and well, I've got a best friend next door. It took me to the next spiritual level. No. But when I got cancer... 
when my wife got breast cancer, when I was let go from a job and I didn't see it coming, when, 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 when. Oh, you can get bitter and you can go spinning off into a bad place or you can say, God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? Because you're in it. He never gets a wrong address. And right, we know everything that comes into your life, if you're a child of God, it came through his hands first. Father filtered. But his goal, you guys, is to make us more like Christ. He's not just some genie who wakes up thinking, my goal is for you to be as happy as possible and for you to tell me what your agenda is and what your dreams are, and I'm here to help you fulfill them. No one is so stupid as to say that out loud, and yet we live kind of expecting it to work that way. It doesn't. It doesn't. So, why do the idols of my heart and your heart cause so much conflict and confusion with people around us? Well, I want to give you three reasons. There's more, but let me give you three. Number one, your idols and my idols have declared war on everyone around you. Ooh. And I hope that doesn't sound too ugly or strong or over the top for you, because guess what? It lines up exactly with how James describes it in James 4. Go to James chapter 4 with me in your Bibles. James chapter 4 in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading from from the New King James because it actually uses this word war three times. War. Woo. Woo. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, if you read the book of James in context, then you understand he's not talking about one nation going against another nation with military might fighting. Nope. He's talking about relationships, you guys. People. People, human beings. And he's talking to believers in the church. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? In your members, he means in your body. So look at me. What James is saying is there is a war inside of you long before war breaks out around you with anybody else. We've constantly got this battle of the flesh and the spirit with a war of what's going to be on the throne of our hearts. There is a war. You do need to be vigilant. Galatians tells us and and Romans 8 tells us that the flesh is in opposition to the spirit. Do you have the spirit of God living in you? Yes. Hallelujah. Resurrected Christ. But your flesh isn't just going to lay down and wave the white flag. It continues to try to deceive you and lead you and convince you to think of something you want as the right thing and put it there. There's a war inside you long before war breaks out around you with anybody else. In other words, once again, we're, we're made aware of where's the place to start when you realize, oh my goodness, Problems are erupting. There's confusion around me. Where should you start? With your own heart. Start with your heart. Start with your heart. We tend to start with, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with him? What in the world? That's bizarre. What's going on in me? What's going on in my heart? What war has been rumbling? Where have I been losing a battle? What has shifted and drifted to a place that maybe it shouldn't be? 
They, do, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Verse two, you lust. Now see, here's another, I grew up in the church. Maybe you did too. We tend to save that word lust. It doesn't get used in our culture much, but when we see it in the Bible, what kind of sin do we think? Lust, sexual. It's a Greek word that is not tied to sexual sin. That is our word we've been getting a hold of in this series. It's simply the word epithumia. It has no sexual reference whatsoever. Could it be attached to a sexual sin? Could it be attached to money? Could it be attached to approval and self? Oh, it can, it can attach itself to anything, you guys. And then like a cancer, it spreads. Epithumia is any desire that's strong enough that it now motivates behavior. It drives me. It's an agenda. It's a word that they would translate Craving, longing, craving, long. Could you long for and crave even something good that pushes it to a place that now it's out of balance and you're going to do harm in other areas? You take a good thing and you're trying to make it a God thing. And then it becomes a really bad thing, toxic, destructive for you and everyone around you. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So again, he's talking about in our heart. He's not talking about outward murder, homicide, but surely you've sensed it and been startled by it in your own heart and seen it with conflict with people. If you could, you would take them out. i take you out. You murder and covet. That word covet is pleonexia. That means the annexing of more. I gotta, I want more. I want more in this area. You're in my way. I want more in this area. I live for this, don't you understand? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. There's a third time. Oh, now he's gonna touch on prayer. One of the number one complaints I hear as a pastor. Prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. What they mean is I didn't get what I wanted and I wanted it really bad. He's helping us understand so often your prayers, listen to me, people like to say they bounced off the ceiling. They don't bounce off the ceiling. They got to the throne. And when he heard it, he said, nope, I want you to see something about you first. Because so often our prayers are simply, God, help me to get what I want. Now that's your job. I really want this. I got to have this. You need to change her, change him, change this, because it's in my way. And he doesn't answer it. Do not have, often you don't have, because you're not even thinking to pray, because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask. Now, I actually prefer the NIV. The, the New King James says you ask amiss. NIV, you ask with wrong, say it, motives. You ask with wrong motives. Even that phrase, you know, pray in Jesus' name. I hope you realize that's not a little magic thing you dangle on the end of a prayer. If I can end my prayer with, in Jesus' name. Now I got it. The Lexus, the Cadillac, the. In Jesus' name means in alignment with his will through Jesus Christ, our high priest. The Bible doesn't teach name it and claim it anything. It teaches when you're so aligned with what he wants and you're starting to want what he wants and you ask for it, it happens. It happens. 
So a lot of my prayers, you guys, I am asking for things, and I'm also listening, and I'm saying, God, align my heart with your heart. What's going on here? I want to want what you want. Would you do a work in me? Would you do a work in me? Would you do a work in me? You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. You see, the biggest problem is not your spouse or somebody else. The real problem on the surface of all the war that's broken out is that there's two kingdoms colliding. And we both can't be king at the same time. We're both guilty, perhaps, of living and twisting the Lord's prayer. No one would say it out loud, but we do it. My kingdom come, my will be done in this home, in this workplace, on this team, on this street, in this neighborhood, in this nation. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth. I'd love for it to be done in heaven. Early in our marriage, I've indicated to you one of my idols was that I wanted to be the best pastor possible. Now listen to that. Is that a good thing to desire? All right. But I headed down that path. What I could not see is that as I desired that, I found out on a surface level, on a human nature level, the best way to get that, because I thought it's to have everyone love you. If they love me, I guess I'm being a good pastor. The way to have everybody love you is to never say no, to do everything everybody wants you to do. Eat lasagna with every person that invites you ever. Never say no. Pray for the opening of the shopping lot. I got asked for everything. Come pray over the shopping lot. Come do this. Come do this. Bring your guitar. Show up. Here, 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 here. Never said no. And it fed something. I was like, oh my goodness, this is working. This is working. And then as my wife just became to get more distant and alien and cool and quiet, I thought, what's up with her? And then I saw her as unspiritual. Look at what God's doing. And oh my goodness. And one time I looked at her and said, why do you never say anything about anything I do? Because I was youth and music. Full head of hair, swept back. So I'm going hard with lock-ins and rolling around in shaving cream and, and doing everything the youth want me to do and everything all those parents want me to do. And then we're doing Easter musicals that are bigger and bigger and bigger. And we get a smoke machine with it rolling across the stage. And now we're going to have a gurney that actually lifts Jesus in the air. And we're gluing beards on. And I'm working for months on the stage. And we're pushing it out, working on Saturdays with men. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of untold hours. And she looked at me and she said... Honestly? And I said, yeah. She said, I feel like the church is another woman that I'm in competition with. And I thought, that is so ungodly. I still couldn't see it. Like, what is wrong with you? What's a wife to do when I'm like, she's wanting me to play play Candyland on a Friday night. I'm like, heaven and hell's at stake. Souls for eternity, girl. There's one more person to save, one more person to meet with, one more. Is it ever done? Even in your job, but welcome to ministry, right? They're texting you, they're emailing you, they're calling you, and everyone just thinks their thing is the only thing you got going on. It's not. But you're just going and doing, and it was scary. It was feeding something, and, it, and I sensed this, war. I was losing something, but it was feeding something, and then, of course, I made the silly mistake of thinking, okay, I don't know what's going on, but there's 600 people that love me dearly. There's only one that I think hates me. It's my wife, but whatever. 
the odds are still really good here. And so as a man, what did I do? The more she acted that way, did I want to be around her? I don't think you like me. So great, I'll just be gone more and I'll spend time with people that do like me. Catastrophic. I lived for approval. Watch what happened. Not bad to say I want to be a great pastor. So this was so hard. When God convicted me, I knew I will have to start disappointing people for the first time. And you could see it in their eyes when you say, oh, I'm so sorry we can't come and do lasagna. Oh, I'm so sorry I can't bring my guitar to your camp out and play songs. And say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and if you've already kind of led people to know you never say no, this was hard for the whole flock. They were looking at me like, what do you mean no? You never say no. I do now. No. No. Oh, and I could feel it inside. Something inside me did not like not being liked. Right? Is this making sense? This repentance is not easy, you guys, but it was life-changing. I have a wife now that loves me. We have a marriage. Maybe we weren't going to have one. I have kids that do not hate the church because I was not gone constantly. Praise God. I still don't think I did enough, but they're all in their late 20s, 30s, and they'll say, oh, Dad, you threw the ball with us all the time. I I thought I did it twice. Oh, Dad, no, no, you did. Praise God. You know pastor's kids that grow up and they hate the church because their dad was never home. He was there for everybody else. I understand how it happens. Someone's in the hospital. Their small group leader goes. Another person on staff goes. The senior pastor didn't come. That's what we're up against sometimes, right? And I have to be willing to say, all right, they can feel ill towards me and be disappointed in me, but I live for an audience of one now who I'll stand before to give an account. And I want, now I say more and more and more the older I get, I want to finish, I want to finish well with my first love for Jesus and my first wife. My first love for Jesus and my first wife, which means I have to be willing to disappoint other people in order to please the one that matters most and to prioritize other things. I was sacrificing on the altar of my idolatry, super important things like marriage. I remember the counselor looked at me because I was in seminary. I'm type A. I was making straight A's, straight A's because I could if I worked my tail off. They said, Brad, you're going to stand before God, and he does not care the grades that you got in all these classes. But he's going to hold you accountable for this marriage and this home. Oh, that was hard. Brad Bigney got his first C of his entire life. Oh, I knew I could get an A if I did. But, the, but this one class had 15 books to read. Fifth, this is graduate school, you guys. Fifth, I had five classes, and one class had 15 books to read, three papers, and three oral presentations. And I went to the professor. Once God broke my heart, and I got it. and said, oh, my goodness, I got to change. And I remember I went to him. You'll love this name. Igu Hodges. Dr. Igu. Who names their child Igu? Igu Hodges. I said, Dr. Igu, I've got marriage trouble and I'm repenting, and I'm trying to work on my marriage. I cannot read these 15 books. What do I need to do to pass the class? And he said, you'll need to knock it out of the park on the three oral presentations. And by God's grace, I did, and I let like 12 books go that were supposed to be read. And then when I got my little transcript, it said, C. It stung. 
but I was shifting to do a new thing. I don't know what that looks like for you, but hear me, this won't be easy. You won't just say, oh, I've been doing wrong. Let me do right. It will be a fight. It will cost you, but it will be worth it. Worth it. Worth it. Ask God to show you what's happening on a heart level inside of you that may be creating some of all the confusion and conflict around you. Number two, your idols. Here's what you need to realize. What's raging in your heart, what's going on in your heart, what you've begun to build your world around and push up onto the altar of your heart will change the way you see and relate to everyone around you. Like putting on, like I've got favorite sunglasses. I do not like normal sunglasses. They make everything gray. I just want to kill myself. I like the world bright. And I know it's unreal, but I pay whatever that is, that thing where you get these lenses that when you look through your sunglasses, like blue is bluer, yellow is even more yellow, orange is, and when we go fun places, I'll literally say to Vicky, oh, you got to look through here. I know it's the wrong prescription, but oh man, look at that mountain, look at those trees, look at those flowers. Through these lenses, it changes reality. But I like it. And I don't think it's a sin regarding sunglasses. But when it's what's going on in your heart, trust me, listen, it means you don't even accurately see the people around you. It's distorted by your heart. Which is why Jesus says, when you got problems going on, Matthew 7, 3 to 5, get the what? Get the log out of your own eye. Then you can see more clearly to deal with what's going on with others. And he says, if you don't, hypocrite, don't start with other people until you said, God, what is going on in my heart? Because it is changing how you see others. It was changing how I saw Vicky. I was not grateful for her. I, woo, when my heart began to change and I began to repent, I had the same wife. And all of a sudden I thought, she's actually pretty wonderful. Oh my goodness, I'm blessed to have her. Oh my goodness, she has some amazing gifts. Oh, I'm learning from her. When my heart was raging with my idols, I was so disappointed in her. Literally, I'm the guy that said, I married the wrong person. I married the wrong, what I really meant and didn't realize it, I didn't find someone to be my co-partner with my idolatry and to get in the side panel seat and help me get what I've always been going after. She's not, God brought me exactly who he wanted me to have that praise God wouldn't bow down and give in and God worked and I'm up and maybe you don't think so but I'm a better pastor now than I was before because believe it or not it was much more about Brad Bigney and that's not what you want it's still, it's the glory of God now and you can play Candyland. It's the glory of God now and I can sit on a front porch swing and just rock back and forth with my wife like I have nothing in the world to do. I didn't used to be do that. She, she used to say to me, do you ever flop around? That was like profanity. I was like, no, no, we don't flop around. If you could be productive, if you could multitask, if there's something to be done, that would be better. Horrible. I can actually swing. I actually suggest it sometimes. Want to swing? Want to go for a walk? I used to say, why do you always want to go for a walk? It needs to lead somewhere. We're just walking around the block. What a waste. And she said to me, honestly, when we walk around the block, I feel it's one of the few moments that I have you to myself. Now, that was before cell phones. 
Now you can still walk around the block and still be glancing or responding to your phone, but you're like, I got you. I never have you. You're always doing something. Which I thought was very commendable. I'm a hard worker. I get stuff done. Couldn't see. I was feeding and fueling my idolatry. And it was destroying people around me. And it was not glorifying God. See, when idolatry is at play in your heart, there's only two ways, basically, you can respond to anybody around you. They're now in two categories. If you're helping me get what I want, we'll get along great. I'll allow you into my world. We'll enjoy each other. But if you stand in my way, if you block me, if you don't celebrate what I'm trying to do, if you don't assist me in what I'm trying to do, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be testy with you. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to lash out at you. I'm going to find ways to punish you. You might be a blower upper, but you also might be a clamor upper. There's more than one way to indicate to people around you, you've broken the rules of my kingdom. I now won't talk to you. Or I'm very short. You can just tell they're saying the minimal thing. And you think, what's wrong? And they say nothing, nothing, nothing. Here's what's often wrong. You broke the rules of my kingdom. And I'm not even aware of it. And I certainly haven't announced it. And I haven't written it, I haven't written it down. And that's why this is so confusing now. It can happen at work with coworkers. And you're like, what just happened? Our hearts, our hearts, our hearts. But here's what matters most. When this begins to take place, you guys, you end up violating the two great commands. You're no longer loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're loving you. And you're no longer loving other people. You're using them and sometimes attacking them. People created in his image. Dave Pallison says this. I've yet to meet a couple locked in hostility. And the accompanying, here's what usually goes with this war, right? See if you can track with any of these emotions. And the accompanying fear, self-pity, hurt, self-righteousness. I experienced all that who really understood and reckoned with their motives. James 4, 1 to 3 teaches that cravings underlie conflicts. I love that phrase. Cravings, epithumia, underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because my wife or husband, this, that, or the other. It's because of something about you. Couples who see what rules them, cravings for affection, attention, Power, vindication, control, comfort, a hassle-free life. I cannot be hassled. Don't bring me problems. Don't tell me that water heater broke. Don't. And you might not realize it. I think I deserve a hassle-free life. I live for comfort. I live for, I know what it is, but it's affecting how you respond. Can repent and find God's grace made real to them. And then learn how to make peace. You realize sometimes, A, we're not even trying to make peace, but B, we're trying to make peace before we discover what's the war going on side side. When you discover what it is that's been ruling you, only then could you begin to have peace with people around you. Until you know what rules you, there will not be peace, but will be a measure of war around you. Until you know what rules you. I kept thinking, why isn't my wife supportive? Why isn't, I don't understand. Constant, yeah. 
Till you know what rules you, there won't be peace around you but a measure of war. So let me ask you, what have you been craving lately? Or maybe for a lifetime. And then consider with me, where do you have the most conflict? Might be in your home, outside your home, on a street, in the neighborhood. Think about how this works with people. I've lived in the same neighborhood 27 years. I've got this one neighbor. neighbor, We're the only person she speaks to. She doesn't really speak to us. We speak to her. There's been a war with everybody. And it's only because we're Christians do I just keep leaning in saying, Hello, Sally. Really awkward. I can tell she's like, we're not going to speak. Oh, we are. Hello. Isn't it a great day? Hello. Yes, rake your leaves in my yard. That's fine. She's gone to war over fireworks that landed on her roof and someone upset her dog and this person, every single person. It happens in a neighborhood. It happens in a workplace. It happens in a home. It happens in extended families at the holidays. Craving. I go into those situations living for something and you're not helping me get it. And so we've gone to war. We've had a falling out. We feel it, but we sometimes don't know what's going on. Number three, let me give you a third reason. Idols wreak havoc in our relationships. Why does it turn into all-out war? Think about how often it happens in a marriage. But I see it happen with roommates. I remember in college, I was there a lot. I had undergrad, then I had grad school. I was in college, well, and I was at University of Tennessee, and then when I went to Bible college, I lost some credits. I was in college or in school like eight years I saw so many situations where, oh, we love each other. We play basketball. Oh, we had a class together. Let's room together next year. End of friendship. I kid you not. End of friendship. Why? Now you're living more closely together. And you're seeing what you didn't see before. And they're in your way. I I, I decided, make your best friend someone that you don't live with. Live with someone you hate. That way you can start the way it's going to end. I was like, I mean, literally, I had this roommate. I could tell he was put out with me. And I'm kind of a normal guy, I think, just like, I don't think we have to chat all the time. And I came into my room, and I could tell he was miffed. He's constantly miffed. He was just assigned to me. I didn't pick him. And he said, come here, sit down, sit down. And he's like, I had another roommate, Javier. And when Javier would come in, we would sit down together, and we would talk about our day. I would tell Javier about, I was just like, you're freaking me out. I don't talk about my day and I don't want to know about your day. Ooh, I don't know what this is. You're living together. Different expectations. And I like clean. So I was the one that vacuumed our room always, always on Saturday. I like clean. But then he complained to me that he said I didn't move his loafers when I vacuumed. Instead of saying, thanks for vacuuming, I could tell he was miffed. He said, you never move my loafers and vacuum them. Oh, you're a piece of work. Good luck on whoever marries you. Yikes. Wow. And then he was sick and I didn't bring him soup from the cafeteria. We don't do this as guys. Be sick. I hope you get better. I'll leave you alone. I'm not bringing you soup. What is your problem? Wow. I mean, I grew up in a home with a twin brother and a younger brother and a mother that's like a German commandant. I, I was not familiar with all these kindnesses. Like just, what? A little rag for your head? Ask you how you're doing? Like, I know how you're doing. You're sick. I hope you get better. (laughs) Wow. And I carried that into our marriage, if you can imagine. I was like, oh my goodness. This, you're all, how does it, how does it go 
to war with people who started off liking or loving each other. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, has an excellent chart that he walks through that explains, oh, how something that even begins as an appropriate, benign desire, nothing toxic or sinful about it initially, gradually shifts into something that erupts into war, a desire, just a desire, a normal desire to have a godly marriage. Anything wrong with that? To be married, is that a sin? To have some kids, that those kids would be godly, to have enough money to retire, to work a job where you feel fulfilled and you actually feel like you're making a difference. Is there anything innately sinful in those desires? Here's what happens. We go from this to, so we go from I wish, I wish I had kids. I wish they were godly. To, oh, I will. We don't even know we've done it. I I will now. I will. When you shift from desire to demand, you now enter a room with silent demands that are impacting the people around you. And you don't even know what you did. And they can't figure out what just happened either. Oh, but listen, it gets worse. We don't stay there. And we live in a culture that aids us in this. Oh, I need We go from I desire to I demand to I need. If you understood my story, my experience, all that I've been through, who I am, how I'm wired, I need. Let me help you guys. Look in your Bible and you will see that the Bible puts very few things in the category of need. It's like food and shelter and water. Those are our needs. And oh, if you're a Christian, your biggest need was rescue so that you wouldn't land in an eternal hell and God did that for you. Here on earth, food, shelter, water. Stop calling so many things needs because here's the problem. You say, why does it matter, Brad? A desire, a need. Here's why it matters. As soon as you call it a need, then it inevitably leads you to say, Well, if you loved me, I need this. If you really loved me, you would help me get this. So desire to demand to need produces you should on people around you. And guess what? They don't. They fail you. Why? They're chasing their own idols, mainly, and wondering why you aren't helping them. So we go from, I wish, I will, I need, you should, to guess what? You didn't disappointment. It leads to disappointment. And oh, as human beings, then because you did not, now I won't or I will. And I'm going to punish you in some way. I won't have sex with you. I won't talk to you. I won't. There's any number of ways to do this. And usually when I get them in counseling, they've reached the punishment stage. Sometimes they can't even remember where it began. The heart's lost sight of how did this war break out? But they both know there's a horrible war. Can't even remember the details. But it's gone from I wish to I will to I must. You should. You didn't. Now, that's why it matters what's going on in your heart. Think about the conflicts in your life right now. And then consider... Paul Tripp says, this need-driven expectation is the source of 90% of the conflict between people. In most cases, you realize, 
I know there's people being sinned against, but when you expand it out, do you realize how often you've actually not been sinned against, but someone has not simply not played by your rules and met your expectations to help you get what you say you have to have? And here's the other thing. You don't get grace for all that. He gives you grace for being sinned against. Will he give you grace for your disappointment and them not aiding you in your idolatry? He'll leave you in pain. He'll leave you saying, I don't understand why life's so hard. Where's this good God? He's not helping me. He won't help you promote, protect, defend, and feed and fuel your idols. He'll expose you. He'll put you in pain. So they say, what is going on? What is going on? Because he wants to seize your heart. It'll change how you live. It'll change your joy. It'll change your sense of purpose. It'll change how you can love others better and know him more intimately. Oh, that is so, so sweet. Tim Keller says, when you finally realize what keeps happening. See, you can do this for a lifetime. Brad Bigney had done it till he was like 30, 31. And I thank God now that he chose to rock my world in the trailer earlier in our marriage. Some people go 15, 20, 25 years into their marriage and it's just, I'm now grateful that he did it as soon as he did. I don't know where you are, but when you suddenly realize, finally by God's spirit, what keeps happening. Tim Keller says there's four ways you could respond. Number one, you can blame the people around you. And try to find better people, better circumstances. And, you, and this is a recipe for disaster as you just continue your idolatry, saying, I just don't have good friends. They're not, I just don't have the right spouse. I just don't have coworkers. It, this is not the good church. You go from church to church, friend to friend. I watch people go from spouse to spouse to spouse. Number two. You can respond by blaming yourself. This is the way of self-loathing and shame. I guess it's just fundamentally me. I'm just a big loser. Looks like everybody else has a joyful life, but not me. Oh, well. The way of self-loathing and shame. None of these are good so far, I hope you realize. Number three. Here's the one I see the most since 2020, you guys. And I understand it was, those were some hard years, but what else were they? They were heart years. But I've watched this third response. People, and some of them in my extended family, so it's ugly, I see it up close. I see the impact on the spouse and family of these people doing this. Curses on the human race. I'm done with people. I'm done with people. I am done with people. And you pull back, you insulate yourself, you become hard, cynical, empty, bitter, refusing to engage or trust or love and open up. But there's one more response and it's the right one. You can do what C.S. Lewis talks about in his amazing chapter on hope at the conclusion of his book, Mere Christianity. He says you can reorient, you can choose to reorient yourself away from this world and back towards God, realizing this isn't going to satisfy me. I can't put this weight on these people. They can't bear it. I keep crushing people. And he says this, if I find in myself a desire 
which no experience in this world fully satisfies, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And your heart was created, get this, if you're wondering, why am I so dissatisfied, so dissatisfied? Your heart was made to only be satisfied with the only perfect person there is. Not one day, someday, when you see him face to face, you need to be being satisfied with Jesus now. He'll never fail you. He'll never leave you. He'll never disappoint you. Now. And it would be helpful if you read Romans 8, 18 and following. Let that be assignment this week. Read Romans 8, 18 and following, you guys, because you will see Paul telling us, look at me, he uses the word futility. This entire creation, everything in it, friendship, marriage, parenting, work, pleasure, image, is groaning under the weight of sin. And none of it was designed to fully say. Do you, you realize it's a sin to complain, but it's very biblical to groan? I give you permission to groan. I groan. You read this passage and you'll see he uses the word groaning three times. He uses the word hoping. He uses the word waiting. As you see this not satisfying you, we're supposed to have a posture of, oh, that's right. But it's coming. It's coming. This was never meant to fully satisfy. It's coming. I groan. I long. I hope. I wait. I groan. I long. I hope. I wait. And I get to know this one better every day now as I meet with him. And that enables me to respond to my less than perfect spouse and kids and coworkers and church family and neighbors in a very different way. Because I see them differently and I don't need the wrong things from them. Oh God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your spirit. And thank you for not just saving us and forgiving us, but being committed to completing us and finishing the work you started. Oh, but it's painful, God. Oh, it hurts. Give us the grace. Give us the courage to say, yes, Lord, do it. Use the surgeon's knife, cut, excise, show, expose what's been going on in me and change me, change me for your glory that I might have greater joy and greater freedom and greater ability to love you and love others in this broken, groaning world. Make me more like Jesus. I pray in his name, amen.